love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Yasmin Salak, and we're in conversation with Nikki Ramage, who is an associate pastor at the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara. She shares about her appreciation for the Douglas Preserve, and about her connection with locals who have seen our town change over many years. We'll also hear about how public prayer requests and gratitude contribute to the health of her church community, and about the importance of hugs in difficult times. Yasmin and I had a lot of fun talking with Nikki, and we hope you enjoy our conversation as well. If you've enjoyed our show, we would really appreciate you writing a review, or even just a rating, wherever you're listening to this. We'd also love to hear from you directly on Instagram or Facebook, with any reflections on how this podcast has impacted you, guests you'd like us to interview in the future, or if you'd like to be involved further in the human family community. You're currently listening to the edited version of this episode. If you want to hear the full conversation, which includes more of Nikki's journey of becoming a pastor, how she attends to spiritual needs as well as physical needs, and the inside scoop on some books that we've been reading, check out our extended version in the same place you found this episode. I'm here today with my co-host, Yasmin Salak, and Reverend Nikki Ramage, who is the Associate Pastor of Adult Ministries and Spiritual Growth at Free Methodist Church a local Christian church that's up on Cliff Drive on the Mesa. Firstly, we want to acknowledge the history of the land that we call Santa Barbara, which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Chumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality in community. Reverend Ramage, can you share your preferred pronouns, how long you've lived in Santa Barbara, and what's something you love specifically about calling Santa Barbara home? Great. And no need to call me Reverend Ramage, though I appreciate it. You can just call me Nikki. Sounds good. Um, so I've been in Santa Barbara since I came for college in 2010. And so I've been here 11 years. And one of my favorite places about Santa Barbara is just the amount of beautiful walks and trails that are easily accessible. So one of my favorites is the Douglas Preserve. And then also one of my favorite things to do is play spike ball at Shoreline Park. And so again, I love the accessibility, easy parking, and then at the same time, just incredible beauty. I know there are a lot of dogs at Douglas Preserve. Do you have a dog that you go with or...? No, no pets. Yeah. And I think I probably won't have a pet unless it's a golden, a golden doodle. The only dog I've ever fallen in love with is a golden doodle. Not my own. <laughs> Amazing. How has Santa Barbara changed over the, the 11 years that you've been here? Have you noticed any kind of changes? That's a really interesting question. I'm sure Santa Barbara has changed because places obviously inevitably change, but 
I, the way I've perceived Santa Barbara has changed because I've changed. So at Westmont, I went to Westmont College and I spent a lot of time on campus, which is in Montecito uh, and looking out over Santa Barbara. And then when I graduated, I worked with adults with disabilities at an organization called Pathpoint, which is located downtown. And so living in Santa Barbara, going to college, I actually didn't know where a lot of things were or really much about the culture and kind of rhythms of the city. But the participants that I worked with are adults, and they had been living in Santa Barbara for 20, 30 plus years. So they, I got to see Santa Barbara through their eyes and also go to festivals with them or learn about different aid organizations or sit for hours in the social security office. And that gave me a different view of Santa Barbara that I'm really thankful for. And then I became a pastor at the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara two years ago. And that's just given me also a different view because we have congregants of all ages and maybe they bought a house in the 70s and they'll tell me stories of um, how they've perceived Santa Barbara changing and getting to listen to them gives me a fuller picture of the city. And also thinking about the Thomas fire and the mudslides and women's marches and seeing people's love and care and uh, desire to protect Santa Barbara has also been interesting to both participate in and observe. Uh, So those are some initial thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a really unique opportunity with your time at Pathpoint to see Santa Barbara through the lens of people group that are probably not very represented in, in public spaces. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I would always say that was my, one of my favorite parts of the job was that they were no, a lot of the people I worked with really became known in the community and they really built relationships, whether that was through like a local coffee shop or they would know people at the post office or, They would know, yeah, just people who had been in Santa Barbara for a long time. And so I learned something from their loyalty and steadfastness and rootedness in a place because maybe they didn't have the same means to be as mobile as I have been able to be. Yeah, pre-COVID, it was pretty easy to go on weekends elsewhere. But yeah, it's always interesting to, to live in a place that most people come to for vacation because sometimes we can forget to appreciate it ourselves. But what inspired you to become a pastor? I mean, well, I'm interested to hear what your major was. You said you went to, to Westmont. I'm wondering if you were a religious studies major, were you planning on becoming a, a pastor at some point all along? Or did your work with adults with disabilities affect that decision? That's a great question. And it's a funny story. I grew up in a more conservative Christian tradition that didn't support or believe in women's ordination. So basically, I was discouraged from ever imagining becoming a pastor. And so I came in with that lens and framework when I went to Westmont. But I was in my freshman year, 
and I was sitting in an Old Testament class and the professor, Tremper Longman, just made an offhand comment about a woman pastor that he knew. And it was obvious from the offhand comment that he believed that there could be women pastors. And for some reason, seeing this person who I respected just implicitly accept the validity of women pastors, it made me go to the office where I could change my major. (laughs) And I changed my major that day from history and business to religious studies. And that day, I couldn't have said that I wanted to be a pastor. It hadn't fully integrated within me and it hadn't fully clicked yet. But I made the first step by changing my major. And from there, I never looked back. And in my tradition, oftentimes a pastor feels a call So they feel a call from God um, to serve the church in this particular way. And a pastor is often considered to be a shepherd who both leads and guides and protects the flock. And during my time at Westmont, I looked back on my upbringing and my participation in my youth group and realized that I loved caring for people. I loved talking with them about their faith. I loved wrestling with some of life's biggest questions. And I loved the person of Jesus. And so I had a experience, a more explicit experience of a call when I was praying. And I just felt that God was saying, this is what I have created you to do. This is who I have created you to be. And I want you to step into that with boldness and with courage. So I'm just really thankful that I get to be in this position and I don't take it for granted. And yeah, being a woman in ministry has its challenges, but it also is incredibly rewarding. I think that's an amazing story. I'm thinking because I feel like I... Also, my relationship with my faith is not just for myself, but it's also trying to improve my character and my interactions with others. So I'm wondering how your relationship with your faith changed from being a follower of the faith to becoming a leader. An interesting way that I've thought about leadership or heard conversations about leadership is that our call as Christians is to follow after Jesus. And ultimately, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a congregant, whether whoever you are, your first call is to follow after Jesus, is what we would say. And then from that is where your leadership stems from. As far as for me personally, just naturally when I would go to church or when I would experience Christianity in more public forms, I would see the pastor and I would often wonder what it would be like to be in that position because, again, I cared about the church and I cared about its integrity. I cared about its ability to live out the good news of the gospel and to be able to express that in authentic ways. And because I cared about the church, because I cared about the people who are a part of the church, because I cared about the message of Jesus, 
I wanted to see that done well. And again, as a maybe pretty precocious college student or high schooler, I often had ideas of how to make it better, make the church better, which since I'm very humbled to say that it's it will always be hard work for every single generation. But I think where the transition maybe came from just being a follower to being a leader is wanting to have some say in how the church embodies um, what we believe and wanting to be a part of the solution rather than just pointing out the problems and wanting to be able to commit and have accountability because I think leaders should be held to a higher standard and with that higher standard comes accountability and accountability is really helpful. So That's very admirable of you to say. Sometimes I feel like there's a lot of power in leadership and Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who take advantage of it. So to hear you talking about how much you're aware of that and how you want to do that well, and and especially because you care about the people is really beautiful to hear. Another thing that I think about leadership in religious spaces, do you feel like your access to religious knowledge has increased? Because when I think about myself and I'm very passionate about learning more about Islam. To me, I always have felt that Islamic knowledge is accessible, but I've always found it to be valuable to meet a Muslim woman scholar because it's a new perspective on the faith. And although like in general, like everyone's teaching the same thing, it's through the lens of a different person. And because people are different, you get new ideas on how to make the faith your own and how to practice it on your own. So do you feel like becoming a pastor has made you has made it more accessible to you to get that knowledge? Or, or maybe like you said, you have more of a say now and how the church runs, at least in your community? Well, part of the requirement is more official education so it's called seminary and it's three years and it depends on the christian tradition like what kind of formal education is required so i went to a seminary called azusa pacific seminary down in los angeles and i found that incredibly edifying and encouraging and inspiring to be able to learn from professors who yeah have studied the scriptures have studied the history of christian thought from all over the world to learn from professors who who also really care about practical sides of ministry like how does someone deepen their faith through certain spiritual practices or even through like pastoral counseling classes which help you understand someone as they're developing or the relational problems or family history that will likely come up when you are talking with someone or they're going through struggles. So all of that I think is invaluable. At the same time, again, all of this you're getting from a very young pastor. I've been doing this full-time for two years and then have had a lot of experience before that, but I've only been in my role two years 
thus far. And so mostly my experience is that I have so much more to learn. And that's also really freeing because I work with two pastors on my staff. So the lead pastor is Pastor Colleen. And then Pastor Doug has also been at the church for a really long time, like 20 to 35 years, they both have been at the church. And so just getting to learn from them, to see the ways that they have developed over years and years of reading and engaging and asking questions and always staying humble and always admitting their desire to learn more and always saying when they don't know something has just really left an impact on me. And it reminds me again and again how much I want to know more and how much more there is to know. But to go back to your original question, the gift of theological education is one of the biggest gifts in my life. Because I think the more you learn about your faith, the more sometimes it can speak to the hard situations that you face. And sometimes as your faith is maturing and you're maturing, you want to do that together. And education around scripture or Christian thought throughout the ages really assists with that. The Human Family podcast is very much intending to bring together people of, of different groups. Again, I mean, the point is that we're all neighbors here in the greater Santa Barbara area, and yet we know sometimes so little about each other. Or what little we do know or understand can sometimes lead us to feel some kind of tension with people that we don't know much about. And I'm really curious about the transition that happened with you, you mentioned in, in college, about moving from a, a more conservative background and a theology where it's not appropriate for women to become pastors, because that's actually what I grew up with as well. And being a man that didn't affect me the same way, I'm sure that it affected you. When I was in, in high school, I was dating someone and I wasn't even comfortable with her being class president. That's how much I had a sense that it's not appropriate for women to be in leadership. And I don't know where I got that message, but I did. And I remember having that conversation and she was like, why? And I was like, I don't know. It's just not right. And I couldn't really give much of an answer. But through my time in college, I similarly had a shift. And I'm interested in hearing about that transition for you, because that's a pretty big shift, especially seeing as how that shift in your beliefs has made quite an impact on on your life's direction. I'm interested to hear about that transition within yourself and also with the community that you grew up in, because I imagine that has probably been somewhat difficult to be able to explain that and maybe not have that super well received. Yeah, Kenny, that's a really great question. When I think back to where I was at, when that transformation was happening in college. What's interesting is questions had already taken hold of me in high school, maybe the end of high school, going into college. And in some sense, I was just looking for answers or for some assistance because, for instance, in my tradition, we're a branch of Christianity that gets a lot of assistance from John Wesley, so Wesleyan theology, 
And there's this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And we use it to help us make decisions. So what's the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Basically, it's saying that when we make decisions, we need to include several things. So scripture is always the main foundation, the main thing that we include. But then we also include reason. So logic and science and mathematics, that's under reason. So we have scripture, foundation, then reason. Then we think about tradition. What has the church done in the past? And then we finally think about experience. What is our experience of God telling us? And what is our experience in the world? So I would say I didn't have the Wesleyan quadrilateral framework because I wasn't a Wesleyan yet. But I used scripture. I used my experience. I thought about the history of the church and I used logic to help me understand that God wanted to use and empower and equip half the church because half the church actually oftentimes 50 to well, more than half the church is comprised of women in Christianity at least. And so I just believed wholeheartedly that God has poured out his Holy Spirit, which includes spiritual gifts of teaching and preaching and shepherding and prophesying and caring and um, compassion. And God has poured out those gifts on all people, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of supposed ability, disability status. All that to say, that theology clicked with me and made sense for how I saw the world, for how I understood the world. And it actually wasn't too hard of a, tran of a transition, if that makes sense, because it really came in line with how I understood what it meant to be created in the image of God and how I understood Christianity at that point. Nikki, I'm interested to hear about maybe a tradition or a practice that's important to you that helps you to show up in the world as a Christian woman and a pastor? When I think about that question, it makes me think of a practice that we do every Sunday during our church service. And I'm, I know a lot of churches do this in various ways and to various degrees, but we have a section of our service called praises and prayer requests. And I really love it because at that time in the service, people are invited to stand and share what they want to praise God for, and then at the same time also share their requests. So maybe you have someone standing and they just won a gold medal in Special Olympics, and so they share that and, you, and we praise God. Or maybe someone has just lost a family member, and so they are sharing this grief and hardship with the congregation. Or maybe someone has started a new project to bring justice in the community of Santa Barbara. And then the pastor who's presiding over that time is normally Pastor Colleen, and then she'll pray through the different prayer requests. But I think it's just a really amazing moment for the church to come together, to see one another, to be able to process also things that are going on in the world, because people will pray for elections, people will pray, and they may have different political beliefs. So it really also makes people discern, 
okay, if I'm asking the church to pray for this, is this something that I really can ask the church to pray for? Or is this something just for me? And because saying you want a certain person to win the election probably isn't going to go over super well if you have people from different political parties. Does that make sense? So I really think it forces people to integrate their faith into their lives and also brings us together as a community. And I just love that practice at our church. And I think it it just helps people get to know one another and it helps us present our requests before God in a way that's vulnerable and authentic. And another practice that we can't do right now because of COVID is we have a hug line after church. So whoever preached that day, so gave a sermon from scripture, talked about it, then they go to the end of the hall where people walk out and then they hug everyone who comes by. And obviously if someone's not comfortable with a hug, then a handshake will do. But what that does is the senior pastor, even before Colleen would talk about the importance of touch and positive touch, because we have lots of seniors who, or even people who are single, who maybe have not had any type of positive touch throughout the week. And so you're talking about the physical element of spirituality. I really see the hug line as an extension of just being able to embrace someone and to make that normal and to, yeah, I just love that that's a part of the culture of our church. We haven't been able to do that because of COVID, but I'm looking forward to it when it comes back. So I think that's just encouraged me in in my faith and the embodiment of my faith and in just, yeah, how sharing together as a community can can build us up and shape the way that we understand and follow God. I really like those practices that you shared. It reminds me of one practice that we do at my mosque. So our holy day for Muslims is Friday. So we have a Friday sermon that's given and then a prayer after that. And then at the end of that, we actually automated it. So we, if people send in their prayer requests beforehand, like via email. And so at the end, like we have somebody who announces if somebody needs a prayer because somebody is sick in their family or because somebody just passed away, those are all shared. And then all of us as a group pray for that person. And I think that's so valuable because Islam isn't just about your personal relationship with God. It's also about community support. and then I, it's so like nice to hear about that hug line that you shared because for us, it's, it reminds me about how for Muslims, Friday prayer, our holy day isn't just about coming into the mosque, listening to the sermon, praying and leaving. We're encouraged to use the mosque as also a community space to mm-hmm. interact with our fellow Muslim sisters and brothers and and to greet them and to smile and amongst the women share hugs amongst the men they can share their hugs and handshakes mm-hmm. and I think that's so valuable because like you said some people I think people who you know have families take that for granted but there are a lot of people who live life alone mm-hmm. um, and they really need that community support and to see that people love them yeah I love that I love the similarities between those traditions when I asked the question, I, w- I was 
thinking more in the realm of probably like spiritual framing and how like certain practices might theologically orient us to be to show up in the world but i really appreciate that you've brought it to a, a very physical and embodied place especially like regarding physical touch and having a hug and how again that can be like a hug is not just a, a hug and then it's gone like that lasts with us and we actually physical touch can be super important for taking care of stress i mean we definitely live in a stressful world and to share a hug with someone can be an incredible gift. And then when you mentioned the praises and prayer requests, it made me think of at Congregation B'nai B'rith, the Jewish synagogue that I attend on occasion, they have a practice of each week naming the people who have passed in the last month and in the last year. I think that's how they do it. Mm -hmm. and, and when they announce the name, if that's someone who was dear to you, then you stand up. Hmm. And basically you can look around the room and see who's still in a grieving period. And that hmm. to me is really powerful because while it may have been common in my church growing up that someone would share the death of a loved one, it wouldn't be a months or a year long noticing of that, you know? Wow, like we really wanna show up for you right now, this week, next week, maybe the week after but then it fades away. And I really appreciate that. At least at Congregation B'nai B'rith, they really say, no, like this, these are things that stick with us for a long time. And of course we get support from many different areas when we have loved ones that pass, but a real intention about saying, we want this congregation and this body to be here to support. So yeah, I really just appreciate the focus on communal support that both of you brought up. To conclude, Nikki, I I'm in the habit of asking our guests to give us a blessing to end our time together. So as our listeners enter whatever they're doing next, would you be willing to send us out with a benediction for all of us neighbors in Santa Barbara? Definitely. God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, would you come and would you bless these people who are listening to this podcast? Would you bless them with your love? with your tenderness, with your compassion towards them? Would, that, would they know that they are seen by you, that they were created by you, and that you walk before them, you walk ahead of them, you walk behind them? And would you give them peace for today? Would you equip them to do your work in the world for justice and righteousness? And would you fill them with your love? Bless them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. My favorite part of today's conversation was talking about how our faiths teach us to be in solidarity with vulnerable members in our society. Faith is about more than worshiping our creator. It is also about making the world a better place by supporting our neighbors. This was the final episode of season one of the Human Family Podcast. Please share it with your friends and family and always feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com.